Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Ash Thorpe, and this week we have photographer Cody Ellingham on the show with us. Cody is a photographer from New Zealand who is now living in Tokyo, Japan, and is currently featuring a series of work titled Donji Dreams. Cody and I discuss everything from our influences to the oddities of being a creative. We also talk about what inspires Cody and his current approach to photography. We had a great time catching up, and I'm excited to share our talk with you all. So let's begin, everybody. Episode 181 with Cody Ellingham. Let's begin. First and foremost, thank you so much for reaching out. You're on the other side of the globe. You're out in Japan right now. Um, Yeah. Thank you for, for, for being here on the podcast and for reaching out. Um, it's really cool. I've, I've, I've been really kind of engrossed in the art of photography and it's cool being able to live at the stage as being a creative and being able to reach out to other creatives and seeing what they're doing and what they're able to capture and shoot from all the way across the world. So it's been cool kind of keeping in a tab on what you've been up to um, via social media, um, Instagram primarily and stuff. And it's cool that you reached out. So yeah, thanks for doing so. And it's cool that we're here. So yeah, uh, it's, it's my pleasure. I know I actually first sort of bumped into your work actually at the FITC Tokyo. Oh, um, that cool. was my four or five years ago now, I guess. Um, I sort of went along, it was actually the first company I was working at when I was doing a design and, uh, we sort of went and, uh, checked that out and I saw your talk there and it was absolutely fascinating and I sort of started following you since then. Um, and it's sort of funny that we've sort of been able to catch up and, uh, you know, actually talk in person now. It's awesome. I mean, that's as, as, as weird as social media and all that stuff can be. I think it's just really great for the, for these kind of reasons, um, yeah, they're exactly. kind of they're 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 hard they're they're hard to I think they far outweigh the the cons of it when you get to meet and interact with um you know people that have like minds and and things that they're interested in doing and stuff. Oh, for sure, yeah, really helps out too. Um, how long? So you've been doing photography for how long now? Um, I really started when I first came to Japan. Um, when when was I had that? picked up, and that was I guess 2012. Um, I came over actually with university. I did a, like a one-year exchange uh, over here. And I sort of really started getting into film photography to start with. I sort of picked up some old cameras and started taking some street photos and things like that because it was just mind-blowing kind of being exposed to this entire new world, right, having come from New Zealand. Um, and I started taking uh, photos there, and I was very lucky to actually get a chance to go up to northern Japan um, I did this like volunteer program because it was only a, a couple of years after the big earthquake that they had up there, um, which was in 2011. And I went up actually with like the, the photography club of the university that I was at. Uh, we went up to northern Japan like three times um, to kind of help kind of document the recovery of that area. It was in a place called Iwate, um, which is on the east coast of north of Japan. And um, it was absolutely uh, an amazing experience to go up there and see kind of the way they had recovered and their lifestyle and and be able to photograph that and document that. Um, so that was sort of really my introduction to photography. Awesome. And that what an interesting way to, to, to be in a foreign place. Uh, I've been to Japan once and it's, it's, it's unlike any other place I've ever been to, especially being like an American Westerner. Like it's, it's, uh, it's unlike anything uh, I've ever experienced. 
And so when you go there, you're completely engrossed in a completely new world. You might as well be on another planet. It's almost that's almost like how, that. Yeah, yeah, that's how I thought about it, you know, because it, it, to, from actually deciding that I wanted to go to Japan to actually arriving at the airport, it was really like two, almost three years of kind of preparation and getting everything ready, you know, because I knew I didn't want to just go for like a short trip. You know, I really wanted to go in deep, uh, if that kind of makes sense. And so I spent totally. a lot of time, you know, getting, uh, you know, I went to university, I studied Japanese literature, I really got into it um, to prepare myself for that, um, that big jump. Um, and now I'm, I'm living here. So it's sort so of cool. All, yeah, it's all sort of worked out. That's beautiful. I mean, Japan is, um, my wife is half Japanese, her mom is from oh. Japan. And it's, I grew up in Hawaii too. So Hawaii is very yeah. close, like closely connected to Japan culturally wise. Yes. And so I, it's always like a kind of a funny joke inside the family. I'm always like, oh, I can't wait to go back to my motherland, you know, like making jokes. <laughs> I'm completely a white person. I'm like yeah, European, yeah. American primarily. But I, I, there's something about Japan that I really feel connected with spiritually. Do you feel the same way? Yeah, it really, um, to be honest, you know, my life I can pretty cleanly divide into two parts at this stage, which is before Japan and after Japan. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I remember the moment that I decided that I wanted to do this. Um, you know, I was probably about 20, 21 years old, um, and I was sort of stuck in my hometown uh, doing a few things, but I wasn't, I, I knew in my heart that I wasn't in the place where I needed to be. Um, and I was kind of looking for what that place was. I was kind of ex experimenting with um, different creative mediums and trying to do different stuff, but the fact was I wasn't in the right place. Um, and it sort of hit me one day, like it was, it was almost like this divine intervention that just hit me. I was like, you know, go to Japan. Um, and I always think of that total recall moment when he's like, get your ass to Mars. And I was like, get, <laughs> I was going to say that, you, yeah. Get, get your Mars ass to Quaid. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I remember that quite clearly. And that's like from there, it set off this chain of events, which has been really, uh, for my creative life as well, it's, it's really unlocked. This, it's like there was this key, you know, this lock on my my creative uh, output and it really opened that up and allowed me to kind of flourish into what, and I'm obviously I'm, I'm still working through that process, but um, it really opened me up to what I know I needed to be doing. Beautiful. And I think, that makes sense. no, it totally does. And I think that there couldn't be a better way as a visual person to find that with the art of photography. I often equate photography and you might be the same way and people that do photography as well is almost like a spiritual awakening of being able to see for the first time again, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, you know, because as I mentioned before, you know, my background at university and that as well was not, um, you know, it wasn't photography, it wasn't design. I had always been doing freelance, like web design and things like that um, during college. Um, but it was all self-taught. Um, what I actually was studying was literature. Mm. Um, and the big kind of epiphany for me was that through words you can create images. Um, and through images you can expose feelings. Um, and there's almost a cycle to telling a story. Um, you know, if you're an author and if you're a writer, you, you create, you, you write a story. You, you see it with your eyes first. You imagine it with your mind. You write, you put it into words. And then the reader actually interprets that with their own mind's eye. Yeah. And I think as a, as a photographer, it's like we're kind of in that, but you can't be too literal either. You can't just sort of show show it as it is. You you have to always put a bit of a twist on it. Yeah. Um, and that's where I think almost this kind of spiritual uh, transcendent stuff comes into it. 
um, where you can almost evoke a feeling inside the person watch, looking at your photo. Good photos do that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's there's levels to it, right? You know, there's level there's like anything. Um, there's levels to different experiences in life, and some photography is very digestible, and some of it's very abstract, and some t- some of it you hate at first, and then you understand later. Um, yeah. I think it's just a matter of how you perceive it or whatever you're going through at the time. But I think with photography, like um, for example, like I went to Japan and all I brought was like my cell phone. I wasn't able to take photographs. Since then, I've been yeah. really really infatuated with photography. So yeah. I'm going to go back now um, next month. I'm bringing my wife and daughter. We're gonna, going for 15 days, yeah. and um, I just can't wait to see Japan through the eye of photography now. And I'm really really excited and. Um, I think it really just helps your experience when traveling or just experiencing things in general because you can see things in a different way, you know, it just really opens up opportunities for perspectives and, sh- and shifting a perspective. Exactly. And I think Japan's also a very photogenic country. Oh, it's incredibly uh, photogenic. Yeah. yeah um, everything's kind of quite densely packed so you can get a lot in the frame. Um, it's, it's very easy to do street photography or whatever kind of photography you want to do. And um, people are generally very friendly and kind. And uh, yeah, it's also, you know, a lot of a Very safe um, too. Yeah, very safe. So yeah, it's definitely a great place to do photography. I would say New Zealand. I've been there once very briefly, but New Zealand's mm-hmm. incredibly beautiful too. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, my, I often think about my journey from New Zealand um, and how I sort of got to Japan um, because, you know, I grew up in a, a relatively small town on the east coast of the North Island. Um, mm. And, you know, I spent, you know, the, the, the first sort of the formative years of my life there. And when you're growing up in such abundant nature and such beautiful uh, mountains and rivers, you almost kind of forget, you know, you, you're, you're in it. And so you, you don't really see the beauty uh, yeah. of it. Course. And now, yeah, now having lived in, in Tokyo and, and explored, you know, the, the metropolis, it's it's really fascinating to go back and see it with new eyes and to actually see the connections with kind of how my photography has evolved because, you know, I'm, I'm very passionate about you know, architectural photography, landscape, um, pl- basically places um, and trying to tell the story of places and uh, looking back at New Zealand, you, know, you have these mountain ranges, these rivers, and looking at Tokyo, you have these these glass buildings and these highways. But somehow there's kind of a connection between them, um, which I think I'm still trying to discover at this stage. But it's been definitely, I think there's a connection there. Yeah, there totally is. Yeah. And I think you're going to find that through the, your journey, you know, as you go through yes. the experience. As It's just going to be um, a creative journey, really, which is really it's just really cool. Um, it's, yeah, it's one of those really special art forms. It's just being enlightened or exposing what you love and sharing that viewpoint and that perspective with others, I think is really key. You often hear that too with photography, or if you look at, um, if you follow a photographer that might've, let's say, let's use New York, for example, would go to New York and, and you would watch their photos of their experience and you would look at your experience and go, wow, it's totally different. Through, the, through your lens in comparison to mine and what you're looking at and how you're looking at it and what you're perceiving is, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. And that's one thing I really appreciate about really great photography is just being able to see um, through somebody's outlook, basically, you know. And, yeah, exactly. And I'm talking about that, that journey, um, you know, getting back to that. I actually, I've just come back from Shanghai, China mm, on, that? on Monday. It was uh, perhaps the most incredible experience of my life, wow. to be honest. Uh, it was absolutely amazing. I was only there for four, four days, uh, but I, 
because you know to, to get there i've been thinking about it for a good year year and a half now i'm you know, going to china and and doing a, a series over there and uh, it was almost i had to face the fear right because you know i sort of built up a lot of fear and uh, i guess anxiety about actually going over there and doing this series and i i just decided to face that and to take that step you know to good. get on the airplane and go over there and uh it, it was such an incredible experience. I met so many wonderful people that showed me around and seeing the city, which is, uh, you know, a lot of very old architecture in Shanghai, as in like uh, early uh, early 20th century, uh, almost colonial style architecture from yeah. when the French and British were there. And then seeing that contrasted with these glass uh, high rises and <laughs> just a super city that's growing into the sky with lights everywhere. And just seeing that contrast with my own eyes and knowing that I, I kind of took the step to go there and do that. Um, it's, it's like, you know, following the journey, even if it, you know, you're unsure about it, taking that step yeah. and doing it. Yeah. That's, it's beautiful about photography. It gets you out there and, and gets you, um, experiencing things, you know, I mean, most, I don't want this episode just to be, you know, just going off about photography, but it really is amazing. And it's, a, it's an art form that it's free once you have all the gear and you don't need a lot. You can, I mean, it's pretty incredible the gear that there we have available to at our, you know, disposal. Basically you can buy yeah. a F Canon 5D Mark II is what I started on and still have comparable, great photography camera. It's a wonderful camera. Yeah. Um, I've, and, I've never, oh, sorry. So go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, you know, um, in terms of gear, um, I've never, now I'm slowly getting more, uh, you know, techn technically minded in terms of um, I need this particular piece of kit or whatever. But when I was starting out, it was really like I just whatever I could get my hands on, whether yep. it was an iPhone or I had just like a little 35 millimeter film camera. Um, and I actually shot some of my best stuff from the early days, actually, just like on a Fujifilm uh, X100. Yeah, uh, just like a little, that's just a little, um, little camera. Um, and I, I always felt like what I needed to do was push that piece of equipment to its limit before I moved on to the next. So smart with the, yeah, with the Fujifilm, it was like, yep, I get that on a tripod. I get it running at its absolute maximum and the limitation is no longer me. It's the gear. Yeah. Then from there I moved on and I got the, you know, get the SLR and then it's, from there it's just a step-by-step step towards, um, you know, image making. Totally. It's very smart. I, I've seen photographers that have all the gear in the world and their photos are just kind of lackluster and they're missing yeah. it. Or yeah. like a lot of photographers that will buy a lot of gear, but they don't leave their backyard, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, bet, I uh, guess it's all about what you're after. You know, there's some of, some of us want to capture the, the world around us. And some of us want to capture what's in our garage. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's, I th there's no right or wrong way. I think it's just a matter of personal preference, which is really what makes it a really interesting art form in and yes. of itself because it's incredibly subjective exactly. and, and it's really difficult, I think, to really convey things unless you are, you know, we'll talk about this in a little bit too, about series and, and why to make series and, and narrative yeah. and stuff too. And have some yes. questions about where you're going with all this stuff too. But, um, no, that's good. That's good to know that you're, that's your mentality. I have a similar one. I, when I started at the five D Mark II. It was given to me by a friend. My my friend Mache gave it to me because he had it. He had picked up another camera. He didn't need it, and I didn't really use it much. And then I started getting a little bit of a bug and an itch to start shooting because I know that once I decide to do something, I just kind of go crazy, and so I kind of have to hold off on vices. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it just kind of went crazy, and I started seeing photos that my friends were shooting on their their Sony bodies, and I was like, wow, like all that dynamic range, and so. 
now I've I've recently switched over to the the Sony A7 III, and yes. it's, I just adore it. It's different from the Canon. I think the Canon's colors are, are a little better. Yes, but I think Sony is getting there. But I wouldn't. I mean, you could you could fix all that in post, and that's fine. So I don't really. Yeah. I want give me more range. These get, get like another four or five clicks of dynamic range it's like yeah i'll take that all day long so yeah more information but but I, you know you can shoot with like a simple point and shoot handheld if you're in the right place the right moment and you're and you have the wits about you to capture something you'll you'll far you'll beat any gear you know so that's yeah, the mean, irony of yeah. it yeah and even like one of my one of my mentors you know he's he shoots with like uh, old film, you know, uh, medium medium format film technology, and obviously it's, it's it's still good, you know, good quality cameras. But um, you know, that's like forty year old technology. Yeah, um, yeah. And so it's relevant. Ama- yeah, and it's it's amazing photography, and it's the medium. It tells the story. If you're shooting film, it's got a different feel to digital. Yeah, and vice versa. Who's the mentor, and how did you find this mentor? Um, he's actually uh, a guy who's been based in Shanghai for a little bit. Um, his name's Tim uh, Tim Franco. Okay. Um, and he did this amazing series in China, and he kind of helped push me to actually go into Shanghai. He was living in Shanghai for a while, and um, he did this amazing series of a city called um, Chongqing, uh, which is like way in the west of China. It's I think it's one of the it's, it is the fastest developing city in the world mm. at this point in time. Um, and um, I can send it, send it to you, but he um, yeah, please. Yeah, I met I met with him, and um, he sort of showed me his his kit, and uh, it was absolutely um, uh, uh, interesting because you know it's it's, it's old uh, old technology, but it's uh, can tell the story, right? That's all that matters, you know. Yeah, it's, that that's what matters to him, and that's helping him translate what he sees and how to communicate. Then it doesn't matter, really. You know, that's the key. And it's kind of interesting too, like um, when like we'll talk about this too. I imagine we'll segue into it. I'm really curious about mentors. I, I'm a big fan of mentors. I think it's an important part of anybody's journey, whether it be creative, painter, artist, whatever, designer. It's important yeah. to have mentors. I, I consider yeah. like I have um, very close friends who are incredibly talented or gifted that are 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 people that I use as like you know to to bounce ideas off of and to make sure that I'm on the right track but having a mentor really helps significantly cuz I I think it just helps you be cognizant of where you're going and getting another perspective from somebody that might be there in your shoes like 10 years down the road or something you know so um, no, I totally, I totally agree. For me, mentorship and and having those experiences has really shaped me uh, as a creative. And uh, there's been a few people along the line who, whether it was only one conversation or whether they've sort of been there um, on a you know more regular regular basis, being able to just sort of talk to them and and sort of get their feedback. Um, and also, I think the other side of it is actually having people who you you see who are kind of up and coming and. You know, obviously, I've still a long way to go myself, but um, talking to people who maybe have just got, you know, have just got started and being able to give them a few tips in the right direction. Um, uh, and that is also very good. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, it's a circle, right? You know, you get, you start out, you, I mean, anybody that starts out with this stuff, you're automatically going to fail and you're not going to be this wonder, wonder child or wonderful person at, at anything when you first start because it's just their learning curve. And then you slowly learn and grow. And then as you establish, then you hit different plateaus creatively and then you kind of pass them. And then you, 
um, and get to a stage where you're able to give back. And that's really, I think, an important part of the, the oh, whole circle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It kind of um, leads me to a question that I think is is a really big one and something quite interesting. And it's I, f- I find it kind of hard to pinpoint exactly. But I'm curious what you think it is, is what makes a great photograph? What makes great photography, in your opinion? Like when you look at something, when you when you sit there and look at it, um, what is it that is communicating to you? Well, I think um, ultimately uh, a photograph should be asking questions um, and not necessarily giving all the answers. Uh, and what I mean by that is, uh, as, as humans, we, we project uh, our subconscious, we project what uh, our own background onto the unknown. And if you have an image, if you have uh, a story or if you have uh, and a, a question mark, the, the person, the viewer, the audience is going to look at that and they're going to put their own experiences and background into that. And so there's all these different interpretations. And so I think as a general theme uh, with, with images and with stories is to, to ask just enough questions and only to give just enough answers so that you can create that spark in the audience's mind. Yeah, and it's... What the real interesting thing is like, how do you manifest that consistently enough <laughs> to yes. necessarily warrant a career or a focus on it that it's not because there's a there's a big leap between the person that starts to, you know, uses their phone to take photos mm. to a, a hobbyist, like a weekend hobbyist all the way to a career professional. Wouldn't you say? I, I think, yeah, there's definitely a, a range uh, there. Um with the career professional, though, I think they're going to be doing that a lot more. And I think you talk a lot of, about the 10,000 hours, right, um, yeah. as, as a thing, right? And with, with someone who's, who's doing that regularly, they can look at a scene. And it could be, you know, a scene that people have looked at, you know, a million times before. But really go in and, and kind of break it down and find out what the, the essence of it is. And then, uh, you know, zoom in, crop it tight and... And, and show a new aspect of it. I think that's that's a skill that you, you can only pick up over time. Yeah. And what yeah. is that? Being observant? Is that your inner eye? Or like, what is that? How do you how do you think that gets discovered? For me, you know, I sort of developed this this process over, over a while, which was this idea of wandering. Um, and whether that's, you know, physically wandering around the city or um, just sort of looking at something and really uh, pondering over it. Um, and that's, I think that's really been helpful for me uh, with the, when it comes to photography is really just um, looking at something and what it means, what it means today and what it might have meant when it was made, uh, you know, what it meant 50 years ago, what it's going to mean in the future. And think about all of that stuff and then try and expose that through, through a photograph. Hmm. It's a lot of things to think about. By the time you're yes. done thinking about that, the photo might have fleeted or left, huh? Well, you know, that's the thing, you know, I, I mainly am f- photographing places. So I'm able to set up a tripod. I'm able to come at different times of day. I'm able to kind of come back if the weather's not quite right um, and really get the essence of it. Hmm. Um, and, I was, you know, when I first was experimenting with photography, I, there was a lot more portraits and I was just taking photos of anything, really. Yeah. I'm um, just trying to find out what it was that um, I wanted to do. But over time, I've really worked out that it's the story of places, uh, buildings, landscapes. That is, that's what I want to be shooting. Um, so yeah, they don't they don't really move. So it's, yeah, I luckily, yeah, yeah, they just adjust by the light, which is that's, most that's right. unless, unless it's nighttime shooting, which is all artificial. You just have usually one light source, which is the sun, which is makes it usually pretty easy. Is why why I think 
knife photography has its own challenges, which I noticed that you do a lot of knife photography as well. I love knife That's photography right. personally. I, I don't yes. know. I'm a night owl and I, there's a different energy of the human psyche and the human spirit at night. There's a whole yes. different thing that comes out at night and especially living in such an electronics like driven city as Tokyo. Yes. I mean, man, I envy you because the photography, <laughs> I, I don't know. I couldn't sleep. Like I, you know, I'm going out for 15 days. I'm probably going to shoot like probably five to 6,000 photos. I think <laughs> like, yeah. It's a, yeah. like I shoot a lot. I don't know. I was going to ask you about that too. Like do you, when you go out and shoot, do you, do you, I mean, you seem like you're probably a lot more contemplative and, and you think a lot more than I do. And I photograph, I'm just kind of going and feeling <laughs> But you do you sit and look and observe and set up and then you take a couple photos. I have a friend of mine, or actually a couple of people I know that just like take like a couple of photos. I'm like, wow, yeah. like, there's so many opportunities and I like all these other things and stuff. But I don't know. What's your approach? How do you how do you work when you go out to a spot? Yeah. So um, in in the past, I have done that. You know, I've filled up entire SD cards in one night, sort of thing. And I can definitely <laughs> I can definitely relate to that. Um, <laughs> but more recently, I think I've been spending more time uh, looking and uh, we, I sort of say taking a photograph with my eyes uh, mm. as opposed to with the camera because um, if you can visualize it in your mind because um, I think Ansel Adams talks about that a little bit he says you know he, he visualizes it in his mind and then it's just a matter of setting the camera up um, but if you haven't got that visualization it will never be uh, uh, you know it could be a good photo but it will never be a, a brilliant photo mm. and so I do spend a lot of time looking um, kind of walking around to get the different angles uh, uh, and contemplating it and so I don't take as many photos as I used to and I still feel like I maybe take too many um, but yeah, definitely I, I've, there's a trend towards taking less. Hmm. I think that's a more of a maturity thing. I would, I would say where you, <laughs> uh, it's like, you're not just spraying everywhere. You're just kind of, you're content, you're contemplating and thinking a little bit more, which I think yeah. is very important. And I think, yeah, I remember hearing something about that with Ansel Adams, which makes sense because his, his photographs, uh, they do have, um, a whimsy behind them, yes. especially later in his career, obviously. I mean, you can't expect that all his photos and not all his photos speak to me either. There's some of them that just fall flat completely that mm. I think are revered and, and are a bit, it could just be beyond me or they're yes. more or less technologically really great or, um, like done well, but they don't have a soul, at least in my opinion. So, I mean, but again, that's all subjection. It's not, I'm not trying to take anything away from him. He's a classic, obviously, but yes. there's, there's something really brilliant about that idea of being able to just kind of, I don't know, stand and look and then go, oh, okay, right there. Or like, let me move two inches to the left <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. And then you're in that perfect position for that perspective that is kind of perfect, I guess, if that's the right word for it. I don't know. Yeah. No, that actually makes perfect sense. And the thing that really uh, my, my photography really evolved from was this uh, sense of awe uh, and wonder for this metropolis that I had moved to. Because, you know, again, as I said, I came from this kind of this country town in New Zealand. And, um, you know, growing up, it was like we went fishing, I went hunting with my, my father and my brother. And we did all that sort of stuff. And um, there was I always had this deep uh, desire and uh, kind of longing for that um, that sort of futuristic city, uh, that urban dream that uh, I had sort of seen through different media uh, growing up and coming and seeing it with my own eyes and kind of being able to witness that gave me this this kind of this this feeling and I, I wanted to try and capture that. 
Uh, and so now, you know, I look at the city, whether it's Tokyo, whether it's Shanghai, and I look at this this, this monument of the future, uh, mm-hmm. really. And yeah. uh, that's what I'm trying to look at in, in photographs. I, 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 that's awesome. I feel it in your photos, which is great. And it has a, it has a tone to it. Um, we'll talk about Domu too in a little bit too as well. Yeah, but, sure. um, no, I, 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 uh, I do really appreciate that. Cause I think, um, I, in regards to different places, I've traveled quite a, quite a, quite a bit and Japan's still one of my favorite places because I feel like it's a place that is all, although very congested, um, there's a, there's a system that works and there's a cordialness and a, and a, like a quick example is we, I was with friends. We were, we, we got the last train and they, they ushered us off politely and we went up to the surface it was like five stories below the city, which is very scary for me because a place that has a lot of earthquakes being that far under the ground is, is very sketchy. Um, but we finally got to the top and there was this long line where we're like, what's this line for? And it was everybody quietly and cordially standing in line going into the taxis that were leaving the station. It was like, it was something that, and especially in America, it was just like, I mean, it's, it's part of the design of America and this, this just the society we live in, which is just cutthroat and, you know, you know, get out of my way kind of thing. It's, it was mm. so, it was so refreshing there because you're just like, okay, it's fine. I can wait and I can be polite and I can be quiet and I could, you know, I could, I could fall in line and it's very kind of, I guess to some people that's kind of scary and like Orwellian. I like it. I'm okay with it. And I think that's the only way you're able to live harmoniously amongst a bunch of people is by having a social um, agreement that we're not going to be assholes to one another. Um, And which is what you don't get. I mean, I I mean, it's very rare when you go to other countries or cities. I've I've never experienced that ever other than China Mm. or in, in Japan. I was like really quite blown away. I was just awesome. Super cool. And it's something that I really adore about the culture and it's something that's really cool. And I, I mean, it's, it's just, yeah, it's very authentic to Japan. I think from what I've experienced, I don't know. I don't know if you've experienced it in, in other places, mm. not to say people are mean everywhere else. It's just a different thing. You know, so. Yeah. I think people are generally very uh, considerate of other people's needs. Um, and, uh, you know, very polite, um, very, uh, well, you know, as once you get to know them as well, very, uh, very outgoing and they, they you know they'll, they'll be there for you and that's definitely something that uh, I, I find very attractive about living here as well the friendships and people that you encounter huh yes exactly yeah and, and I think like um, friendships are very um, very important I think in Japan because I think it's uh, it's like a sacred thing you know like once you agreed it's not like just some superficial thing you know so which mm. Which is really cool. How how many exactly. years have you been living in Japan for? So in total, it's coming on to five years. I went yeah. back to New Zealand for a little bit, but yeah, all up five years. And you speak Japanese fairly well. Yeah, so I do uh, a, 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 a lot of work with Japanese companies and Japanese clients. So I'm kind of okay to deal with yeah, that sort of thing. And as I said, I'm very interested in literature, so. So I attempt to read books from time to time in Japanese. Hmm. Um, but yeah, definitely I can communicate in, in those situations. Very cool. I mean, that's mm. obviously got to help. I just use Google Translate, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> it works yeah. fine and they're they're okay with it. And I try not to bug anybody, but if I mm. needed something, that's usually... And then I, I took it in high school, so I know like oh, really? very little. So but it comes back very quickly um, when, when there's like, uh, when the setting's right. But... Um, yeah. yeah, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not, I think for the general, um, being able to get the 
to point A to point B, it's actually pretty easy, at least from my perspective. It's much yeah. easier than what I've experienced, like trying to learn Vietnamese or something, which has a lot People of tones. People are very helpful tones. as well. So, yeah, they're, yeah, they seem to be very like willing to um, understand that you're not, you know, you, you, that you're trying basically, which is yes. cool. That helps a lot, which is always nice. But um, no, it's it's that's cool. And learning and, and knowing the language is obviously very important. Have you had yeah. a chance? You mentioned being able to kind of tra travel a bit around. I mean, Tokyo is such a sprawl, but there's so much to Japan other than obviously the metropolises that um, live within it. Have you gotten a chance to get out and about? Oh yeah, I mean, I've I've traveled quite extensively in Japan, and I mean, I went to. In the when I sort of first got here, I, I remember I did a trip to Okinawa, which is mm. uh, quite quite a bit south. It's sort of halfway between Taiwan and Japan. Yeah. It's like a trop tropical island, um, and I had an absolutely incredible experience there. Um, I had a friend who was from Okinawa, and we stayed there, and like just sort of a stone's throw from his house, there was this um, like abandoned hotel which was on an, like a little island. Oh and yeah. When it was yeah, and when it was low tide, you could actually walk out to it. Wow. Um, it was like knee deep water and you could walk out to it and, and there was this hotel which was I think probably a relic from the, the 80s or the 90s when they had the economic you know, bubble um, and we were able to go up into that and it was just like going to this time machine, right? Um, wow. And so, yeah, and we explored and there's a lot of caves uh, and like just different things in Okinawa. So that was a really awesome thing. And going right, right up north to Hokkaido which has got this incredible uh, nature and scenery. Um, I've done a few projects up there actually, and it, it looks like New Zealand. You know, it's it's like this uh, forested mountains and lakes, and there's deer running around and bears and things <laughs> like that. Uh, so all these different contrasts, right? Yeah, it's got yeah. a lot, a lot of texture to it. Yeah, I've heard a lot about Hokkaido. I think we're gonna go to Nara. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely gonna hit Tokyo. So it'd be cool. Hopefully, we get a yeah, chance to meet up and do some photos. That'd be fun. Oh, for sure. I went to Nara actually with my wife, and we um, stayed in uh, there for just for a couple of days. But we got um, we got some bicycles. We rented out a bicycle, and we were just like, because you know it's really uh, friendly for you know cycling in Japan. It's you know you're very safe and very easy to just get around. Yeah. And we were we took these bikes, and we were just um, we went up into the different hills of Nara, and even at nighttime we would just find like an old temple or something and not in a, a park by the river and just you know, sit down and it was summertime actually I remember now and um, you know take a picnic with you or something like that it was just really uh, a really nice experience very uh, very easy to get around very cool that's awesome yeah, yeah as, as I've experienced everywhere else too and, and also the food's incredible too which is oh, yeah. always makes it great we should talk a little bit about your series in this uh, the Danchi dreams is that how you yes. pronounce it Danchi Dreams, yes. Yeah, yeah. And how'd that come about? What is this What is this um, series that you've done? And yeah, give us a little bit of background. What's going on with this? Yeah, so Danchi are these uh, Japanese public housing projects, uh, concrete uh, public housing apartments that were built sort of starting in the 1960s, early 1960s. Um, and uh, they're really their peak was from then until about the 1980s and they built thousands of these buildings just around different areas of Japan and it really emerged at the same time as Japan was finding itself uh, kind of amongst the League of Nations. It was uh, this uh, modernity, right, this uh, rebuilding of, of the country after the war and um, kind of finding their identity again in many ways and 
I started just kind of being fascinated by the form and the structure of these buildings because they have a very certain, uh, well, they have distinctive shape um, and a sort of a certain texture to them. And that's what caught my eye just aesthetically. But as I sort of started talking to people and kind of photographing them more, I realized there was all this history bound up in what they really represented. Um, you know, going back to uh, 1960, for example, um, the emperor's son, you know, the, the crown prince of Japan, actually opened up. He inaugurated one of these danshi buildings, right? And um, it's never just one building either. There's usually, uh, you know, 20 to up to 100 buildings in one complex. Hmm. Uh, and he actually opened one of these up, and I was just thinking, you know, how how incredible is that it's just you know it's just a building yeah but it was so important that they you know they sent you know, the royal family to kind of open it up um and it also kind of happened around the same time that the olympics came to tokyo which was 1964 and so that was a really big moment when japan was basically able to say to the world hey we're you know we're here um you know we're ready to go um and just I'm really interested in how that dream of the future, the dream of kind of the new Japan uh, has changed over the last 50 years Mm. Um, because the buildings themselves are still there and they very rarely get modified that, you know, there's never any renovations done. So basically what you see is what they were. Maybe they're a little bit, uh, a little bit dirtier. Maybe there's a few cracks in the walls, but basically they're kind of a time machine to what it used to be like. And, if you look back at old videos or you know, old films of what Japan used to be like, and there's these shining white uh, buildings, and people wanted to um, wanted to live in these places. You know, they weren't just for uh, people with uh, lower incomes; they were a middle class ambition. Um, and looking at them today, you know, they're getting knocked over, and uh, people are putting up uh, shopping centres, or they're just being turned into normal apartments. And I feel like it's very easy to forget what they represented. Um, and that's kind of what I've begun to try and explore with this series um, is that idea of the dream of not just Danchi, but the dream of uh, modernity and kind of what that promise was of the, what the future could have been and kind of how it has turned out. Hmm. What are your thoughts, your personal thoughts on where it's, where it's turned out to be? Mm, I really I feel like it's uh, really the cycle is, is almost complete. Uh, Japan has the Olympics coming in 2020, Mm. Um, and as you might know, next year the emperor is actually stepping down, and so the it's it's like the end of a of an era Mm. in in more ways than one. And uh, a lot of these, you know, very iconic danshi complexes are are beginning to get knocked over, and there's almost this feeling that uh, you know what danshi replaced, which is these these old wooden houses, right? These old communities. Um, which is, you know, they wanted to get rid of those and wanted to make them into concrete buildings. Uh, what they replaced is now completely gone. You know, in Tokyo, you very, very rarely find a building that's older than maybe 1950. Um, almost, you know, 99% of buildings are going to be newer than that. And even even then, most of them are going to be from the 70s or 80s. There's, you know, there's this distinctly, distinctively this kind of lack of context, uh, architecturally speaking. And, of course, the places we live uh, influences, you know, influences our lives. And so when you're in a city that's kind of almost postmodern, you know, everything is, has been knocked down and rebuilt. How does that affect people? Um, how, how do we view history when we're, we no longer even see history or the history that exists is only in museums? Um, and I think that's a question, it's a much broader question, but it's something I'm wanting to look at as well. You mind me asking how old you are? 
27. Okay. Yeah. Cause I'm 35 now. I feel like the, you start, I think there's, I was just talking about this with my friend for, at dinner. We we're getting these kind of thoughts, these deeper thoughts beyond yourself and, and your own mm-hmm. ego and who you are, but like beyond you becoming more self-aware and thinking of these kind of things. I think this is a very mature outlook on a, at least I think it is. Um, a, a perspective of looking beyond kind of what is now and like what was before and what's coming and kind of being aware of it. Is this something that you've always kind of considered or is this something that's just getting much more aware because it's right in front of you? I've, I've, I think I've always been very interested in history. Um, and, you know, I've always, you know, I've been, you know, since I was a kid, I studied uh, history and, you know, I had a lot of books. So I do, I'm, a, I'm an avid reader. I love reading old stories because it's, they, you know, they transport you back to that time, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I think time for machines. this project, yeah, yeah, time machines. And, and one thing that um, sort of started this project, you know, is, um, because, you know, I do photography, I do a bit of art direction and design as well. And I try to make time uh, in my week or in my month actually to do other stuff, right? And so um, I spend a lot of time with my wife's grandfather. He's probably about 85 years old now. Um, and he lives in Tokyo. He's Japanese, you know, and he speaks Japanese. And he actually runs a small business making these like a paper doors, the Fusuma. Huh. Do you know the Fusuma paper doors? No. No. So they're like the, you know, the sliding doors you have in the... Okay, I know those. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so he he makes those, and okay. um, it's just him and, and his and his wife that do. Is there that. another name for those? I thought there was a different name. Yeah, so the one with the white paper is called the shoji, and okay. then the, the one with like a textured paper is the fusuma, and he he makes both of them actually. But right. um, and I would go around to like see him and actually help him out, you know, because um, you know sometimes he gets a big order and then he, it's just him. So you know, I go and give him a hand. Crazy. And, <laughs> yeah, and for a, for a good period there, I was going there maybe once or twice a month and actually helping him out when I had time. And you know, we'd kind of talk about the old days, and he would be telling me Tokyo as it was for him when he was growing up in the early forties and fifties. Wow. And it was absolutely fascinating, you know, because. Um, I mean, he's an, he's an incredible family, and I really, I really do love them. And just having these stories, you know, because he was there when the Olympics came. He was there, um, you know, he was he was just a kid when Tokyo got firebombed in the war. And, I um, mean, just the stories he had. And wow. he's just so so chilled out about it as well. You know, like his – the house – I remember him telling me the house on the left and the house on the right of his, of his house in Tokyo – they both got hit by bombs wow. and it was like only his house was left. And he's saying, you know, he remembers, he remembers running down the street, um, just, you know, cause he was only five, five, six, seven years old. Um, I think at the time and just hearing that and it's like, well, if, if you can go through that and still be chilled, you know, uh, ready to go, you know, yeah. um, cool, cool guy. It's like, man, that's, that's, that's pretty inspirational. And then that vision, you know, cause that, that happened and then, they rebuilt the country and there was this kind of this um, this, this kind of energy, right, that, you know, we could redo it and we could make it better. Um, and that's something that I really picked up talking to him and also talking to other people who are maybe a bit older and trying to then look at it now from 2018, uh, you know, from this future perspective. And it's like, well, you don't necessarily see that to the same degree. Um, and that's something that I find very fascinating that, you know, I can sit there and I can put my hand on the, on the concrete of this building that was built, you know, 50 years ago and someone else was there doing that 50 years ago and we're both standing in that same place. Maybe they're, they're not here anymore, Yeah. but we kind of can share something right through that space. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. I, I like that's, 
It's pretty fascinating, you know, and you really think yeah. about it. I'm a big fan of that too. I call books like uh, time machines because that's yeah. what they are for me. It's like when yeah. a really good book trans transports you, it's a time machine, especially if you allow it to. Um, but that's, yeah, that's it, it, the thing that really always baffles my mind is, is he saw that happen. It's not that far away. You it's, know, it's, it's, it's just one handshake, man. Like, we, yeah, it's crazy. Like, it's and, crazy um, that that was happening, you know, and it's it's I mean, it's it's happening around the world. There's violence and, and bombings and, and violence, this, you know, unfortunate things that are happening all over the place. And the crazy thing is, is that things prevail and they change and they shift. And like it's the I don't know, it's hard for me to grasp but at the same time. It's just the reality of it, you know. And the other thing that really sort of blew my mind was, um you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Japan, you know, various Japanese authors. And there's this one author in particular called Mishima Yukio. Are you familiar with him? Yeah, I heard that last name. What's the, yeah. was, was Mishioka made before? Mi- Mishima Yukio. Yeah, so he, he wrote a few books um, that really uh, were, were quite amazing. And I think his, his, his most famous one is called The Sea of Fertility. It's actually a series of four books. Um, and his life, because um, he actually, he killed himself in 1970. Oh. Um, uh, as kind of a political act, but it was also a, a very kind of poetic thing. He did the traditional, um, you know, harakiri, uh, and his, oh, his life did? was actually he stabbed himself. Yeah, yeah, because he was he was uh, he, he had some you know different beliefs about different things, and wow, he was trying to make a statement. And he his life actually got made into a movie that was uh, is actually produced by um, George Lucas, uh, and I think Francis Ford Coppola as well. They both were executive producers on this film about his life. What uh, was it called? About. Uh, Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters. Because I know George is a big fan of uh, Japanese cinema. They all are because that's where they lifted all the Westerns and everything from. So Yeah. And so um, that's an incredible film. And I'll have to watch thing it. Is, you know, heard of it. Yeah, no, it's got an incredible soundtrack as well by Philip Glass. But um, that, wow. uh, that film, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of his books as well and that film as well. And it's funny because I keep bumping into people who knew Mishima Yukio like wow. firsthand, and it's just it's just crazy. Like just the other night, I was I was kind of talking with some people, and there's this older guy there, and he's like, yeah, 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 Mishima, yeah, we used to do kendo together, and I was like, what? Like, <laughs> that's <laughs> like, so cool. Wow. Yeah, and um, it's like it's not as far away as you think. Yeah, um, it's very close. Yeah, yeah, and I, I just yeah, it's 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 it's. I think it's because. Well, I think there, because of the, the dawn of the age of information, the internet and all that stuff, I think we feel so far away from what that generation was because of just how different it is. I mean, it's, yeah. it's pretty different. I mean, the internet has really changed the game f- through and through, really, if you think yeah, about it, what it's done for just society in general. Um, yeah. It's pretty crazy. But it's, yeah, it's, it, it is always interesting when you're, you know, just a stone's throw away from people right you know it's very close which is yeah especially if you're fascinated or if you read their words and like how close you are in time it's just yeah, fascinating you know yeah because at the end of the day you know we're you know you and i we're both individuals but we we, we exist in this kind of ocean of um, inspiration and creativity that goes back you know all the way um and i always think like the classic example is like um are you familiar with like the odyssey the homer yeah yeah a yeah. long time ago it's been a long time yeah, like I mean, people think it's 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 just one person, but Homer is you know the, it's actually like a, a bunch of people, and is it we like don't a know their names. Yeah, it's like a yeah, collection of people. Yeah, it, it might have even been a couple of generations. Like no one really knows, but 
the you know it's consistently said as like the, it's the you know the greatest epic story ever told you know the, the Odyssey, and the, the fact that it wasn't even one person it was a group of people who were able to collaborate on this on the story uh, and and create this um, you know this vision. Um, I think is a testament to just how important it is to connect yourself with other people uh, creatively, socially. Um, you know, if you kind of lock yourself off and you, you know you're, you're just focusing on your own individual experience, your own, you know, as kind of this node, this this kind of one person, I don't think you're ever going to be able to transcend uh, to that higher level with your with your work. Mm. It's interesting. I mean, I, I fight this all the time dealing with mainly just dealing with the the internet and the social aspects of just how how connected we are. You know, sometimes I don't like it. I don't know if mm-hmm. you feel the same way. Sometimes it would be nice and like, I don't know. I mean, it's all a choice, right? I could choose not to be on social media and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. Um, I just, yeah, it's something that I fight with. But at the same time, I know that my favorite work and the work that I make that I enjoy the most is made collaboratively with other people. Because that, ke- that chemistry and that, that alchemy that happens from minds merging is pretty crazy. And if you really think about it, neurologically, if you think about how many neurons and synapses are firing just to get like a word out, think about a complete thought and then a complete thought that's constructed around a concept. I mean, it's pretty, it's a pretty crazy, crazy thing. And if you imagine that combined with another person's mind, just how much yeah. energy that actually does take, you know, which is fascinating in and of itself, you know, so. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely a, a big, uh, a big fan of that. And um, just, yeah, pushing discussion, um, you know, feedback loops with different people, uh, you know, with your work, showing it to people at different stages, getting different opinions from people, I think is all very important. Yeah, definitely. How do you deal with, um, how, like, how does it work? So you have your mentor. If yeah. you're like, let's say you take a photograph and you're considering putting it in like a series, and this is something yeah. that I think is really important, or it's really difficult, I think, for some people is to kind of cut down their work to the core or reduce mm-hmm. their work mm-hmm. down to a core. How do you how's how do you figure out your selections for say doing a series or something like that? What's your process like? Yeah, well, you know, maybe I start with, um, you know, for example, Danchi. Uh, yeah. I think I think all up, like total, I've got like maybe three thousand images, right? Sure. And of that, of that, ones that are actually in any way usable, it's maybe one uh, percent. So uh, three hundred images. Like, no, ten percent. So yeah, ten percent are usable. So it's like three hundred images. And of that, ones that tell the story that I want to tell, it's it's one percent. So there's like 30, 30 images, right? Um, and to you know, through as as I take the series, I, I sort of cull out images. I I maybe put them in a, a a different mood board, or you know, I I use Lightroom or different software to actually manage those and kind of divide them up into different categories. Um, and once I get to that 30, then maybe I go and um, I talk to my mentor and I talk, uh, you know, ask them what they think, what the, the kind of the, the, the feedback is. Um, and then maybe I go and take more images. Uh, maybe I cut, cut it down into half. Um, and basically the feedback they give is, you know, it's never like, I like this one, I don't like this one. It's, it's almost like they're asking me questions that I can reflect on. Mm. Um, and then I made the decision myself, if, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah, no, it totally does. Yeah, distilling down three thousand to what a hundred? Yeah, the, the exhibition I just had in Tokyo uh, actually was sixteen pieces. Yeah, um, so there you go. So, <laughs> yeah, and just distilling that down, it, it, what's the pro? Is, does it take a long time for you, or is it pretty quick and clean and clear? Or and mm, once I was able to get the theme, I, I had sure I had six, that helps. Yeah, I had. 
I have six large pieces and then 10 smaller ones. Um, and the six large ones, I, I, I worked out a theme uh, for what I wanted to show with that. And once I knew that, it was very easy. Mm. But to get to that theme, um, uh, yeah, it, it took a little while. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah. And just breaking it down. I think it's yeah. important. And I think that's probably where I'm heading. It's kind of cool because I'm looking at your work and I, I think you and I have a kindred eye in a yeah. sense. I, hopefully that's not an insult or it's good. Uh, <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. But like, I, I think we have similar points of interest. Um, yeah. And I think it could possibly be also just the lens, the the, the focal length and stuff. Perhaps I it could be wrong, yeah. but um, I, it's cool. I'm looking at what you've been doing because you're obviously years ahead on your journey, which is cool. I'm seeing kind of Oh, that's interesting. Your approach and it's for me. It's just I don't know. It's, it's fascinating. My mind's constantly trying to just consume as much information and curiosity as it goes through the, the journey of creation and stuff. You know. So um, thank you. No, it's it's very cool, man. And I think having a series, it's always helped me um, in my life and my career is being able to focus on something and giving your work a point and a purpose. Because if you don't do it, it just becomes some sort of thing. But if you personify and you identify it and you give it a, an identity, it really takes form and shape. And I think that's a very important part of the creative process when you're making work that actually has definition and meaning is personifying, identifying it, giving it some sort of identity, basically, a la a series or whatever it might be, you know? Yeah, just relating to that, one of the, the big takeaways for me over the last, you know, I guess, year or so, two years even, um, has been this idea of like the first and the third person. And I think with social media, especially with Instagram, um, I think it's very easy to kind of get into this state where you start talking about your images and, you, you know, maybe you caption something and it's like, yeah, here's a photo I took in Tokyo, da, 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 um, you know, put some hashtags in there. But what you do when you do that is you actually take the viewer out of the world that you started to create with the image. Yeah. Um, so from, from a first person story you've actually taken it to a third person story and it's like breaking that that fourth wall with the viewer um and, and i think that's something that i've been very conscious of and so i try to keep my work very pure in the sense that i am direct and honest and authentic with it and i'm not going to try and talk about it as if it's this um this other thing you know it's it's me um, if I'm going to caption something, I'm going to caption it. It's going to be a short caption. Yeah. Or a, the best thing is no caption at all. But yeah, not, don't 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 break that continue uh, that kind of that story by throwing in your own kind of personal feelings about it. Right. Mm. Um, just kind of show it and be honest and open about it um, without kind of talking around the topic. You know. Sure. I, I find yeah. that's, that's a conundrum. I find I run into constantly in regards to say social media and we could point and point it right down to like, say my interactions on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram, primarily probably Instagram because it's a information, like it's an image sharing platform. I, I, I just, I just put like whatever it's, I, I try not to put um, a narrative on it. Same because I don't want to, inf I don't want to um, get in the way of the viewer's narrative. Yeah, but then the, the the this is probably a thing that you run into as well is the the questions I get most common are about the gear. You run yeah. into that too. Uh, I get questions. And how do about you deal the gear. with that? I mean, I just I mean I tell people or sure. um, whether whether it's about the gear or whether it's just a comment that I, I can tell it's it's not necessarily um, you know it's it's looking at the image as. Uh, you know, because Instagram is this medium where you, you know you're seeing this little crop on your on your phone of of a larger picture, right? And 
I, I feel like it's very easy to just say like, yeah, nice capture, nice photo. Um, and I always, I always appreciate people actually taking the time to comment and, and, and like a photo, but it's like, you know, like you don't, don't feel obliged to, to necessarily leave a comment like that. Like just, you know, if, if you're just having a look at it, I, I appreciate it. Um, there's, there's a story to be told and, you know, we don't necessarily need to use words to, to kind of to discuss that, you know? Yeah. 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 I, I agree. I think it's, it's, it's a wordless medium. It really is. I think it's a medium yeah. that can live without it. Um, I don't yeah. think it, I think it, there's different levels to it. Um, I, one of my, probably one of my bigger influences in the beginning of what I was doing is, um, a photographer, um, he's very common and co- popular, obviously Gregory Crutzen. I'm sure you're yeah, familiar. Yeah. And, yeah. and watching his documentary was really, it was a big inspiration, mainly for the first big homage I ended up doing with a group of friends, which was for Ghost mm. in a Shell, which is yeah. taking that Gregory Crutzen mentality of like, you know, it's just a photograph or it's just an image and let's put everything we can into each pixel so we can make something yeah. special. The the biggest p- kick in the butt was that, like people didn't understand. They're like, why is it just an image? I want the whole filming. Like, where's the moving piece, you know? And yeah. I was like, oh, well, like you don't, you couldn't even appreciate the the actual image, you know? And, and I think it, I, it hurt at first because I was, oh, you missed it. And I, and I yeah. guess I was like, I felt like a failure because I felt like I, I led this project that missed the point. But at the mm-hmm. same time, I realized it's just not everybody's going to appreciate what you do and what you make. How do you deal with that? Yeah, so that's a very important thing. And I think for me, Instagram is probably, for example, you know, using Instagram as an example, it's very easy to um, chase the likes. You know, you, you're going to sure. be pushing out content and it's like, yeah, this is going to get the likes. But ultimately, um, that can be very destructive. And I think, uh, if you know, I, I read a lot of like the Stoic uh, philosophy. And if you look at, you know, what someone like Marcus Aurelius says about, um, you know, this kind of attaining fame or, you know, trying to get a name for yourself ultimately um you know if, if you're doing something f- and you're posting a photo on instagram you're creating a piece of work just to um, a- appease people to kind of give them something uh to like um I, I think you're turning your back on what your true nature could be and for me i've always been careful to not let that you know the number of likes or the number of retweets or whatever affect my uh, my creative story because just because it gets the likes just because it gets the retweets doesn't mean that it's the story that you need to be telling um and so i really try not to look at look at that number um and i really try to go back to the basics when no one was following me on instagram no one was retweeting my stuff yeah and think back to those days because that person that i was is the it's still the person i am now Sure. Um, and the, the work I was creating then, it wasn't self-conscious, you know, it was really, you know, I was just creating it because I wanted to create it. And that's something I've tried to really um, stick to as much as I can, um, you know, not just creating work um, to uh, make people happy, but actually to tell the story that I want to do. Yeah. And within, within that, the true fans and people who appreciate your, you know, your journey on a larger sense um, they're going to be even more, um, attracted to you, I think. Yeah, I think so too. It was a, I totally agree. And it's, it's hard because you take a risk, you know, you got to take a risk. Uh, We have mutual friend Liam Wong as well. I've been, I met up with him because he lives in Montreal and I was out there working and we met up when we did some photography and we had just a long talk, a lot of talks about this kind of stuff. And, you know, Mm -hmm. for, for somebody like himself who really blew up quite fast. I, I would say I could be wrong, I, but his work spread incredibly fast and he got a lot of love, rightfully so, because his photography was really beautiful. And 
Um, but I was thinking like when I was talking to him, it's like, you know, well, in my mind, I'm like, what happens if you go to like, say, I don't know, Dubai in the day, you know, like mm-hmm. in your photos and your, your, your view on things is totally different because of the subject matter. And how do you release that? And what do you deal with? Like, how do you deal with if people, you know, reject it? And it was a story I remember, um, my friend Anthony telling me, um, after kind of like a pivotal part in my career. And he said, um, Bob Dylan, um, the singer songwriter, he, he had, um, he would, he, in the original, in the beginning, he would just do these kind of folk songs. He would come up on the stage and he would sing with his, just his guitar and he would, you know, do his amazing music. And, and then he, he wanted to add a band. And, and when he started to add a band, people like rejected it violently. Mm-hmm. Even they would like mm-hmm. protest and like hated it. And they just wanted to continue doing what he was doing because they were comfortable mm-hmm. with it. And he just stuck through it. And then they eventually caught on to it and then they eventually loved it and praised him for mm-hmm. it. And I think mm-hmm. anytime that like I'm on that same page with you where I, I go, you know, this is really nice and it's really great to have affirmation from people. And, and we all just want to be loved, right? You know, like mm-hmm. loved and understood. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it can be unhealthy. I think like you said, and it can be almost a crutch against your art if you're only feeding who you were in the past and continually mm-hmm. in that cycle and like feeding, uh, feeding, uh, uh, an audience that is just going to want that one thing. And you can't blame them because, and it's, mm-hmm. it's great because they came to you for that one source, but at the same time, mm-hmm. art is a dynamic animal that constantly mm-hmm. changes, you know, yes. and it's changes based on your life and your experience and your mood. And if you are a true artist and a true creative person, I think you're ever changing, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. And um, looking at my own journey, you know, my earlier stuff, um, uh, what, you know, it's definitely evolved. And I've tried to stay true to this this idea of storytelling uh, that I think has manifested itself with Danchi Dreams. And, um, you know, ultimately, um, I think it's been the right move because looking at, the, you know, where the project is going now, you know, I just launched a Kickstarter for the for the book, the photo book. And, and congratulations. That's like, Oh, thank you. That's already like 140% now um, funded and sort of like two weeks to go, 10 days to go, I think. So that for me, it's like, well, that speaks for itself as well that I, you know, I've really stayed true to kind of the vision I wanted to explore with that and that people have, you know, been willing to put money down for something like that. Um, for me, that's, that's incredible. Um, and if I had stayed where I was doing the same kind of stuff, I don't think it would have would have gone that way. Um, so that was, yeah, definitely gave me a, a bit of encouragement to stick with doing the kind of, you know, stick with this journey um, and constantly be pushing boundaries. Um, yeah. That's awesome. No, it's very cool, man. And I, yeah. and, and congratulations. I know Kickstarter is not an easy task. It's a, it's actually a job in and of itself. Oh, it's pretty full on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, and it's, yeah. yeah. People- I launched it on the, cause I had my exhibition about two, yeah, two weeks ago mm-hmm. and it was just for one week and I launched it on the opening night of the exhibition. I launched it oh. and um, we had like this first spike and then it kind of goes back down. Like yeah. it, it just sort of levels off a little bit and I was like, Oh man. Um, but it's, you know, it came through and, um, I'm, I'm I really appreciate everyone who's sort of taken the time to actually, you know, support, you know, pledge to that project. And um, I know that it's, it's going to be a, an amazing opportunity to actually have these buildings, which, you know, I've begun to love, um, actually be able to kind of have them in a, in a photo book that people can have. 
Um, and even once the building is demolished or once, you know, we, you know Danshi start disappearing from Japan, people can still look at this photo book and have the story of the Danshi there. I think that's, that's going to be awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. You're just, yeah. time, you're just, um, I call it, um, it's like a time capsuling, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. I, I try to do that with things that I find important or interesting. I try to do it with my car and all kinds of stuff, like time capsule yeah. it and put it into the public forum or the public space or get it online or get it into just that space, basically, because it, yeah. it, it lives a little bit longer. It's based on energy, not like a physical thing. Exactly. Um, that's really cool. I mean, I know Kickstarter is, a, I've had a couple friends do it. It's it's a rigorous process. Um, but it's it's great when it pays off and obviously yeah. it's worked for you and that's congratulations that's great oh, then you, you can just focus on that you know and yeah. hopefully be able to you know achieve that the, yeah. the the one thing I want to talk a little bit about is the, for the next thing is um, are you considering doing possibly going from photography to film work and you mentioned kind of your your love of films I think earlier on in the conversation yeah. is that a segue or is it something you've been considering or have you been doing it lately <laughs> yeah so I've definitely been considering it and um, I've kind of taken my approach so far has been um i've been trying to build up the individual skills that i need to make a, a film um, and so for me you know obviously uh, jumping into making a feature film for example uh, is is a major undertaking you know it's it's an odyssey in itself huge but yeah but um you know there's different skills that if you break it down into modules and you're you know you're kind of systematic about it you can actually learn the parts of filmmaking i think um you know just over a period of time and so now i, I think i've begun to understand uh, composition um and as i said i've always been interested in storytelling and writing and reading and there's something i've been trying to develop as well and then i guess on the business side in terms of production uh, dealing with people um you know, being able to make things move, um, that's a skill that I'm, I'm sort of trying to develop now. But definitely for the future, uh, filmmaking um, and storytelling on that on the big screen is something that I want to move towards. That's awesome. Same for me. Yeah. That's one of my life goals and that I'm slowly chipping away at because there's a perfect word that you're using for that. It was just an odyssey because it really is. It's, <laughs> it's a quest. It's like, um, yeah. you know, the Moby Dick thing. It's like the, it's yeah. the whole thing. It's the, the journey. And I was just yeah. talking about this at dinner tonight too, just talking about like directors that I study and I really appreciate is these directors that, you know, they've earned almost every step of the, the creative process so that when yeah. they're there actually directing, they understand like how to operate a camera, how to frame, how to tell a story, how to communicate with an actor and all those things I find to be really fascinating. And it's definitely a, a quest. It's entirely a quest. But you live in such yeah. a, a city. Yeah. Um, last time when I was there, I was able to meet with my friend Michael Arias, who's the director of Tech on Kingcrete and um, he produced an the Animatrix. I don't know if you've seen either of those. Um, yeah, the Animatrix is uh, that's, that's an incredible film. Yeah, yeah, it's got some really great animations in there. And um, yeah. and Arias, I was talking to him about like you know I really I'm fascinated by the idea of possibly going to Japan, and this will segue into probably one of my big dreams, um, yeah. personal dreams, is getting consent hopefully from. Otomo-san to let me translate his amazing epic masterpiece Domu into film because yeah. I think it would translate incredibly well. And so it was kind of ironic that out of nowhere you kind of reached out and then we were talking and then seeing the photos and then the Donchi thing. And I was like, wow, that's, that's like, that's Domu. <laughs> and then your reaffirmation of that is basically yeah. kind of what he based his, his art on. Um, 
But yeah. I, I've been we'll wanting to go to Japan and, and to film, and that, was, that would probably be like on the top of my list is to. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, so for cool. people who don't know, Dongu, uh, A Child's Dream, that's the, the manga that yeah. uh, uh, Katsuhiro Otomo wrote. I think it was maybe about 1980. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of people are familiar with Akira and yeah. the manga and film. But uh, Dongu is a little bit lesser known. Um, but it's the story of this like this young girl and she's got um, like psychic powers. And she actually lives in uh, Danchi, you know, basically the Danchi that I've been, similar to the Danchi that I've been photographing. Um, it's because, you know, it's such an iconic thing in Japan to have these danchi buildings. That's what, um, you know, Otomo-san decided to use as the setting for this um, story. And um, I've actually been, I've had the chance to visit the exact location that he used as reference. It's um, just in, in, yeah, in northern Tokyo. Um, And it's just incredible because it's quite a large complex. It's like 15 story buildings and there's, you know, dozens of buildings. Um, and being able to visit that and see that with my own eyes and kind of mm-hmm. see the shots and the angles that line up with the actual manga as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that would be an incredible project, I think. Oh, man, I, I would love it. I, I, you showed yeah. me some of the photos and I'm like, wow. That, yeah. <laughs> for, for, for my eyes, um, seeing, I think what I really love about being an outsider and appreciating the art from Otomo, for example, is yeah. it's so alien to me. It, even yeah. the buildings look sci-fi because they're just different types of architecture, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so when I'm seeing the photography, I'm like, wow. So hopefully when I go out there, I can take a train and go out there and experience that and take as many oh, photographs. Because exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. that would just, um, it would just make my day. It would just be amazing. Um, it's just, yeah. I, I personally, I, I'm a big fan of Akira, obviously. Akira, yeah. but I'm actually more a fan of Domu. I think yeah, Domu yeah. <laughs> is is Domu has uh, all the things from Akira, but it's just different. It's it's not as massive. It's much yeah. more contained, but it has what I love in stories, which is a lot of twists and turns and like unexpected things happening and the murder mystery kind of stuff and the horror. It's just ah, mm-hmm. oh, it's so good. I mean, it really it spear it spearheaded his career. I think it was. It, I think he got that um, Nebulous or some kind of big award. It was yeah. kind of a controversy, I guess, because he got it and people were like, it was like the first, I think because it was a manga or something, they usually give it to like writers or something. But yeah. I mean, that's how good it was. It was a controversy, you know. So. Yeah. Are, you, are you familiar with um, Satoshi Kon? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Satoshi like Kon's Paprika is yeah. um, amazing, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's another one that really, I mean, in terms of film and animation, I mean, that's one that really stuck with me. I mean, the soundtrack and everything as well, um, really, you know, when I was still living in New Zealand, that was one of the things that really caught my attention. And because it's, it's, you know, as you said, it's otherworldly. Yeah, right? it's entirely. It's, it's incredible. And the attention to detail. I mean, we have this word in Japanese, we say komakai, hmm. which means attention to detail. And you see that in the manga, you see that in the anime, and that's something that's really brushed off on me, spending time here working with Japanese clients, working in Japanese uh, design businesses and things like that. Being able to kind of absorb that, you know, being, being the sponge and just kind of uh, picking that up as I go um, has really, uh, really been uh, useful. That's so cool. You're living my dream. Enjoy it. (laughs) It's so cool. No, it's so cool. I mean, yeah, definitely. It's, I think, I think it's also because it's an kind of a slightly unobtainable thing because I'm so rooted here in Southern California. It's nice to have a fantasy, right. And be able to to dream of it. And then you just enjoy that process of it. But yeah, that's, that's, um, that's really cool. And it's good. It's cool to hear that. I always felt like with photography, I would, learn how to be good at photography, at least good enough to acquire the image in my mind or the mood and feel. 
And then I was going to translate that into film. And then from there, understand how to tell a story and edit. And because I know the VisFX side and I understand editing and stuff. So I'm trying to meet in the middle there. And that's my goal, basically. I'm doing a slow burn. So it's cool to hear that you're doing the same thing. And you have so much, you have such an abundance out there. You just have, it's just fraught with texture it's crazy yeah yeah i mean i sort of i try to be a little bit more minimal actually like in terms of the filmmaking you know i'm, I'm doing a slow burn as well i think but um are, are you familiar with um ozu yasujiro the director of like a like tokyo story and all of these are old 1950s films have you heard of him i haven't seen tokyo story and i don't know if i've heard of him He's kind of, yeah, he's kind of old school. He's uh, from the same period as, like, uh, are you familiar with, like, The Seven Samurai and those old, like, Rushmore and these, these old stories? Yeah. Architectural um, color. It's kind of the same period. But, this, yeah, this uh, uh, Yasujiro Ozu, he, he did a lot of films kind of in the yeah, 1950s, 1960s. And I remember sort of reading about his life story and how he created films. And he said the most important thing was to write, um, you know, just to express through the words what your vision is yeah um, and that's sort of rubbed off on me because you know i'm you know i do a lot of writing and uh, in my free time and as i said i'm a big reader and so visually you know i know i could do i know i can do the you know the the, the big thing the epic uh, the epic shot but at the end of the day it's like it's, it's the story there yeah. And he's got the, he's got this very famous shot that he actually invented called the he called it the pillow shot i think where it's just the camera is about I guess six inches off the, the ground and it just stays there and the, the story goes on like people are talking and, they're, and they're, they're doing it and the camera doesn't move and it's such a basic shot um, whether it's in a living room or whether it's outside and the dialogue and all of the story is where it happens mm-hmm. you know the camera doesn't yeah. even move there's no there's no VFX going exactly. on there exactly but he's able to tell the emotional story and combine it with the music and with everything and um that's kind of where I'm trying to go now is is pull smart. back smart yeah it's much more yeah. i mean it's it's it, you're i think what you're doing is you're distilling you know and i think that's mm. great Tchaikovsky does the same thing i think exactly. really great filmmakers understand the 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 power of constraints and using those yeah. constraints to it i think yeah. a filmmaker that has endless bounds it usually tends to make just shit i'm to be completely honest it's just it's just it's kind of like whatever you know like you're missing the point and i think it's it's you kind of see that with all the film legacies now if you see like all the the remaking of things and and like they're missing the constraint therefore the art is kind of limitless and and, and that means it's got limits because it's they didn't put itself into a constraint where i think it's really important to do so i think that a lot of great films are made under deep pressure and they're just made under like heavy constraints because the 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 visionary and the creatives had to push against so many different laws of the of reality and the art form is usually if it's really well maintained it's like kind of pushed through and yeah. it's, 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 it's a, I think it's something that's, I can't, it's, it's fascinating when I see a director continually put out good or great work. I'm like, wow, that's yeah. insane. It's, it's really quite amazing. Is there, a, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, you know, there's a lot, um, there's a lot of push forces that will push you to kind of this mediocre, um, thing, you know, like this median, um, you know, this, this kind of safe zone, but, and, you know, as a director, I think that's the thing that I'm still studying as well myself, which is like how do you push that vision and and stick with it, because you know you can have the, this great idea, but when you take it to you know for, you know take it to a company and you, know, you talk about you know how you actually want to make it, and then they come back and they say, hey, we need you to change this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. Having the ability and I guess almost business skill to be able to kind of negotiate that so that it works out for you 
and it doesn't infringe on the vision. I think that's a critical skill that is something I'm still studying at the moment. Yeah, it's a persuasion and it's a way of communicating and getting the best yeah. out of it. You look at, if, yeah. you, if you're really curious about that, study Guillermo de Toro. He's a very great, yeah, I yeah. think, because it's pretty amazing that he managed to make like Hellboy, for example, you know, like yeah. that's pretty crazy. Um, Hellboy in, its, in itself yeah. and as an idea and as a film and how expensive and risky it was, it's pretty crazy yeah. that it was actually made. Del Toro, I think, is one of those kind of people that is incredibly persistent, incredibly powerful, like powerful in his passion. And I yeah. think it just it, it it exudes through the the art and the, and the creation that he makes, you know. So exactly, um, yeah. And and I think that's I, I, you know, making films. I think is uh, I've studied so much about this too, and I remember like Chris Chris Nolan saying like you gotta st- stick to your guns, you gotta really just yeah. fight for what you want. If you think about it, Christopher Nolan's films are really they lack compromise you can feel his direction you know yeah. which is really yeah. cool I, but mm-hmm. he's a director that goes like he goes just as big as michael bay but there's still constraints if that makes sense you know like yeah exactly. there's still a box that he's living within which i think makes his his films still very digestible and yeah. um memorable and rewatchable too which i think is cool is there yeah. a film or a set of films recently or shows that you've watched recently that have inspired you i actually um I went to a play recently, and I know theater and, and film are a little bit different, but um, similar though. Yeah, I went to this this, this play by uh, it's by a guy called Terry Yamashuji, and it was just one of his short stories. He's he's been dead for about forty years, I think, but um, it was just a remake, and I was in this little theater that could only seat about twenty five people, Ooh, that's and. Cool. Um, and it was this, just this old, um, this old story from the '60s, um, and it was pretty low budget. I mean, as in like no budget, and this, just the way the actors could tell the story, though, um, it was absolutely mesmerizing. Mm-hmm. And um, it, just you know, with you know, with, with a you know basic, you know, not not even basic. It was just you know, just a black set, um, a, a couple of lights, and then these actors telling this dialogue and putting their heart into it. And, um, you know, they had a smoke machine. That was the, that was the, the special effects is they had a smoke machine. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that really inspired me. And I, um, I saw it because there was a couple of little stories that they played on that night. And um, that really, um, really inspired me to actually get back into writing and, and kind of going from that basics. Um, and then, you know, going to the other extreme, which is, as I said, the Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, um, which is that, that biopic of Mishima Yukio. That story as well, which was really like, it was like an international collaboration, they had huge, huge budget and all these different people working on it. That as well had this kind of consistency to it, which moved me to tears. You know, it was a, an absolutely beautiful film. And, um, it, you know, seeing that, you know, that kind of uh, continuation of a vision uh, really, uh, you know, it was really inspirational. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. And yeah. I think, and that's, isn't that interesting? And again, as I was talking about like influences and I think mm-hmm. it's, it's being, having your mind and your soul and your creative energy, like open for those influences to go oh, to watch sure. a play and to be inspired by that and to put that into your yeah. film. And I think that's so much more important to do that because I think it allows you to be inspired by other things. And I think, um, there's like a famous line that I always remember from Ghost in the Shell is like when you over specialize, you breed in weakness. And it's so true. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like yeah. Th- th- that film actually has a lot of really poetic s- s- moments where it kind of extrapolates on the human condition and issues that we have. Yeah. But that one line always reminds me because it's like it's so true. If you just only 
focus on that one thing, you, you might be really great at it. And that's awesome. But I think in regards to art and adaptation and evolution, I think it's very important to intermingle and to cross yeah. and to cross over and across pollinate and to connect things. And, um, I think that's, I think that's, um, you, th- yeah, I don't know, there, there's, there's strengths and weaknesses to that. And I think it's, it's way too much of a blanket statement for me to say that in general, <laughs> but I think, um, there, I think within, within the realm of art, I think it's really great and being able to be susceptible for influences to permeate your subconscious yeah. is really important. Yes. Um, have you seen, um, speaking of Tarkovsky, I guess, have you seen Annihilation? It's not Tarkovsky, but it's, uh, influenced obviously from his work. No, I haven't. Yeah, it's no. interesting. You should check it out. It's got the yeah. stalker kind of things going on to it, which I'm not sure if you're a Tarkovsky fan or not. And um, I find his work very interesting too. And it's very kind of, I guess it's, I don't know, I shouldn't say it. Maybe it's like kind of <laughs> Japanese it kind of feeling yeah. in a sense where, but maybe it's just Russian. I don't know. I could be completely wrong. I um, actually, yeah, I actually did this thing where I made this like mind map. Um, I still I add to it quite regularly and basically what I do is I have like a photo of a director or an artist or a creator and then I have kind of photos or screenshots of their work around them mm. and just like Photoshop kind of thing and then I draw connections with different um, people who I know were directly inspired or they were kind of um, you know working in the same time period and um, I've got this huge mind map that I always add to and I've got Tarkovsky in there because um, you know you can draw the line back you know like uh, Solaris and that and then you connect that with what people were doing at that period in time, what people were doing earlier, and yeah. how that influenced them, and how people today, um, you know, it's, it's you know they, they they say that they're inspired by this particular person, um, and being able to kind of draw those connections, um, it, again comes back to what we were saying about Homer and the Odyssey. You know, everything is kind of collaborative, and even if it's you know, 20 years, uh, 20 years in the past, you can still kind of collaborate on something um, on a thematic level. I think. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. That's interesting. I would love to see that. That sounds really interesting. Yeah. It sounds like a perspective window almost, if that yeah. makes sense. I think it's yeah. so often it's so easy, especially now with how information is so heavily, quickly exchanged and the trends and how fast and easy it is to get your attention pulled away. Just to yeah. remember how inauthentic almost everything is and how yeah. it's already been done. But at the same time, it's like, um, you know, I've, there's another saying that I always remember too, is like nature holds the patent to all originality or I don't know if yeah. I'm, I'm paraphrasing the thing, but, yeah. um, which, which is always fascinating to me, but it's, it's good to see kind of where things came from and where they evolved and kind of, cause that's so true. When I would look at say when Otomo was drawing Akira or, um, when he was building it, you got to think you got to go look, maybe look like two or three years prior to its actual release, maybe four or five years you look at the films and the things that were being made, it makes total sense what you see. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. You get a perspective. Um, and I think that's really important. I guess it's just in, in, uh, perspective is very important, you know. So I think so, yes. And having that perspective constantly feeding your creative um, lens, I think, is really important. I heard a saying the other day, and I was curious what you thought of it. The saying was, um, you're only as good as your taste. What do you think of that? Mm, uh <laughs> That's a bit of a hard one, you know. Um, I think uh, individual personal taste, you know, you could e- you could either be the kind of person who sees it as absolute and, you know, the only truth, or you could see it as something that's more subjective um, and open to influence. And if I think back to what I was into, you know, five years ago, ten years ago, it's like, well, if I judged myself on that taste, um, you know, it's, it's pretty bland perhaps. But um, 
on the other hand, um, you know, I've been able to pick up new things along the way. So I don't know if that is necessarily an accurate statement. Yeah, it's interesting mm-hmm. one. It's something I've been thinking about a lot lately because I do. There's part of it I do agree with. I think that your taste defines who you are and what you make. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, yeah, it is kind of a, a conundrum that happens. And I think a lot of times when I see work, uh, it's it comes down to a difference of taste. It really does. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you could. And I think one thing I often do to kind of distill things down in in, in art because I think art is, although it's kind of been with us for as a species for quite a long time it's it's very Mm. new in its newest form i think in regards to Mm. say food and consumption of food and preparation of food i look at food actually as a as an example of like defining things or explaining things or using it as rationale i don't know if you find a similar thing but if you think about like say for example like taste when it comes to food for example like it's Mm. easy to articulate a certain type of food because the word cuisine with yeah. art, it's it's much more subjective and it's harder to pinpoint still because it's not as defined. Which I think it's its beauty, but at the same time, it's it's what's the biggest hindrance for art yeah. itself. You know? Yeah, I think I I would tend instead of taste, I would tend to take things to a high level and look at what the thematic motivation is behind what you're looking at. And so, uh, for example, um, the idea of you know the hero's journey or the epic. Uh, finding the self, um, you know, uh, kind of that selfless uh, journey as something you might see in a particular kind of film or a particular kind of image as opposed to something that's maybe more self-centered, uh, uh, more realistic, more uh, narrow, narrow. Uh, you know, uh, this scope is a bit narrower on that. Um, I think that's how I would perhaps judge works, you know, and, and I guess taste. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the work that I'm attracted to often has these larger I guess larger meta, meta meta connections, but perhaps that's just because I'm looking at it. Maybe someone else looking at it wouldn't see those. It's yeah. hard to say. No, totally. I mean, it's again, it's at that point, then it's subjective perspective, you know, and then it's like your perspective is your own perfection or it's your own reality. And yeah. then we're getting into like philosoph- philosophical <laughs> conundrums, you know, yeah. which yeah, yeah. that's what keeps me up late at night. I'm like, what, how do I explain this or how do I articulate this and how do I yeah. communicate this and how can I, yeah. you know, uh, you know, personify this in some kind of capacity so that it can be distilled, but at the same time retaining the, you know, the power and energy it has. So yeah, it's just, it's an endless thing inside my mind. I'm just curious. I'm always curious. And that was a, that was a saying I saw floating around. And I thought it was really interesting. I was curious what you thought of it. And I think your reaction is very much on par with what I was thinking. And it's, mm. it's just, I think taste is constantly changing and shifting, but at the same time, I think it's important to have taste, whatever, whatever it is to you, good or bad. I think yeah. it's important to have it. How important do you think it is to understand the past? Like we talked a little bit about this, but in regards to making art, do you think it's important to understand what was made prior or do you think it's important just to go and create and to capture? Yeah, so I think it's, you know, there's kind of two ways of looking at it. There's the art history kind of, you know, analyzing what they were doing and, and, and kind of looking at the images at almost face value. You know, this is, they did, the, did this image at this period, but uh, I think the bigger thing is what paradigms were they breaking at that time? Mm. And that's the thing because we can look at um, photographers from 50 years ago. We can look at artists from 200 years ago and we can think, wow, that's great. And it's because, you know, we, we've seen it since since it came out effectively. It's, it's always been in our cultural uh, consciousness. But if we go back and think, well, when this person was doing this, nothing else like this existed. Yeah. They were 
breaking paradigms. And I think that is kind of the approach that I take. And it's like, even then they were working up, you know, they were standing upon the shoulders of giants when they were creating work. They were breaking paradigms at the same time, but trying to look at, you know, what it was that they were disrupting and what the status quo was at the time, what, what it was that they did that was different and trying to pick up on that to then incorporate your own work. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah, I agree. And looking at it in a good perspective as to like in its context, I think, right. It's like, yeah, what were they doing in the time and, and what, how are they doing it and exchanging that? I think is very true. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, um, I think it's this knowledge, you know, understanding, um, what it is that you're doing and the thing that you're doing and what, where it's come from. Sometimes I think that it's, it, it's good to know yeah. that, but at the same time, it's also important to be able to, create your own if that makes sense yeah i'm, I'm constantly exactly. trying to be aware of that it's like well if they did it then why can't i you know yeah and yeah. what's what's my thing that i'm contributing to the generation of artists and just art in general that yes. is on that same level that's so hard to do exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. so difficult exactly. yeah the pressure on every photo yeah. or whatever you put on and i i could see that could be a completely fatigue state for people that are entering photography to kind of put that weight on them. But yeah. I don't, I wouldn't advise that for anybody starting out. Obviously you do take your time, yeah. but, but it's, um, it, yeah. it, it, I don't know. It's a, it's a something I think about a lot. So yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. So something, so your show went really well, Kickstarter successfully and yeah. you're enjoying your life out in Japan. What's the future hold for you? What's going on for the next uh, year or so? Trips well, I and all stuff. Yeah, I had basically three three goals for the Danchi originally, um, which was, one was to have the exhibition in Japan, and the second one was to make a photo book, and then the third one was to have an exhibition on a larger scale internationally. Um, and so right now I'm sort of trying to work out where I'm going to take that, because what I actually did, um, for people who don't know, uh, I actually had this exhibition in, in an old building from the same period as the Danchi, and I kind of modified it and kitted it out so it kind of looked like a danchi on the inside and so people could see these images that i took in the context of the building that they are if that makes sense hmm. um, cool. and what i really wanted to do was take that to a whole nother level and um kind of almost take the different parts of a danchi the floor the tatami mats the doors even the walls and the door uh the windows and stuff like that and package that up and then take that over you know overseas or take it somewhere and set it up again as a space that people could go into. And um, I've been experimenting with like a soundscapes, actually having like the sounds of a danchi. I did mm. some recording with my a friend of mine actually helped me. Um, we did some recording of like the echoes and the different sounds of these buildings. And Very cool. We actually, yeah, we actually played that at the exhibition and it was really awesome because um, there's this, I don't know if you're familiar, at like five o'clock at night, there's these chimes that ring in Japan. Have you heard those before? Uh-uh. No, I don't remember. I don't recall it. Maybe I did. I don't know. It, it's kind of it's kind of weird, but it's like there's these it's like the the bells of a school, but hmm. they play like a little melody at five o'clock, and that's like the sign the sign for the children to go back home. And we, it's oh, maybe kind I of, did hear that, and I was like, what is that? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's kind of it's kind of neat, but we were able to record that with like the echoes Great. of the concrete and things like that, and the, the 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 voices of the children, and kind of bring that all together to create this this ambience, right? Hmm. And what I want to do is yeah, take that to a whole nother level and have like a, a large uh, in a large installation where people can walk in and kind of experience this Danchi dream as a dream world, like a, like a, uh, you know, a created, uh, a built structure inside of a gallery or inside of a factory, whatever. 
um, and see that firsthand. That's really my next goal for that. Awesome. Yeah. That sounds like a, uh, an ambitious one, but well within <laughs> grasp, which is cool, yeah. you know, so yeah. it's like obtainable. I think it's really yeah. important when you make goals to make sure that they're within grasp because it becomes very difficult and, and it's easier to give up on them if it's like way too far out there. You know what I mean? So yeah, I definitely really cool. believe in step by step. And, uh, you know, that even coming to Japan, it's like I knew there were certain things I needed to do. I needed to get a degree to be able to work here. I needed to learn the language to be able to work here. So it's definitely step by step. And the same with the filmmaking. Like I know there's certain things that I need to learn um, to before I'm going to be able to really make that happen. Um, and I'm working on those actively. I'm, you know, I'm putting the time in. Um, because it's just, you know, step by step and walking, you know, climbing that mountain, um, yeah. you know, keeping an eye on the, on the summit. And there we have it, everyone. Big thank yous to Cody for coming on the show and sharing his time with us this week. You can find links to the show notes for this week's episode at thecollectivepodcast.com slash 181, along with links to our Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes podcast page. Have an amazing day, everybody. Go out there, be powerful, be prolific. Peace out. 